listening to Impacted. From the University of Sussex. A podcast series about research for real change. Welcome to Impacted, the podcast series about research for real change. Each episode showcases particular researchers here at the University of Sussex and considers the impact that their work is having in the world. My name's Will Hood. And I'm Suzanne Fisher-Murray. And today we'll be sharing the work of Gail Davey, Professor of Global Health Epidemiology, and Melanie Newport, Professor of Global Health and Infection from the Brighton and Sussex Medical School, the global hub for podoconiosis research. My name is Melanie Newport and I'm a Professor of Infectious Diseases and Global Health. Professor Melanie Newport has been investigating the genetic basis of podoconiosis and has been working towards identifying the genes that lead to an increased susceptibility to the disease. I'm Gail Davey. I'm a Professor of Global Health Epidemiology at Brighton and Sussex Medical School. Professor Gail Davey has been working on podoconiosis for more than a decade. She lived in Ethiopia for over nine years and worked at the School of Public Health in Addis Ababa University. Over that time, she supervised more than 40 master theses and helped develop a PhD public health program. Gail has managed a program of research into podoconiosis since 2005, covering topics ranging from the consequences of podo on people's lives to its diagnosis and treatment. But what exactly is podoconiosis? Podoconiosis is a leg swelling that progresses slowly, disables people and causes huge stigma. It's usually found in the highland tropics, particularly across Africa. There are physical disadvantages, so disability, um, including acute episodes when people have to go to bed, completely unable to do anything. There are social disadvantages, stigma, psychological effects... Um, psychiatric effects as well and there are economic disadvantages so inability to um, farm or earn a living Thanks very much Julian for that kind introduction and thanks to In 2014, Gail gave an inaugural lecture at the University of Sussex in order to further explain to people how devastating a disease that nobody has heard of could be and perhaps more importantly, how easily it can be treated and prevented. Because literally nobody has heard of the condition. And so I'm going to start with some pictures. This is what the feet of people with podoconiosis become like. You can see the skin thickening, the darkening, the roughening. You can see nodules appearing, lumps and bumps over the feet. You can see that the swelling progresses up the leg making it heavy and unwieldy. You can see that in some cases, it even fixes the foot, so a person is almost unable to walk. But let's remember that podoconiosis isn't just about feet, it's about people. Before 2002, Mm. which I think was the year that you said Mm. this first came onto your Mm. radar, Mm. was there any research that existed at all Mm about podo? There was. Um, there was some amazing research done by a British leprologist who was living in Ethiopia in the 1970s and 1980s. And he very much off his own bat um, realised that there was this big issue with swollen legs that weren't 
um, connected to leprosy, which was his, you know, the main reason that he was there in the country. And so he set up his own series of research projects and did a lot of work looking at um, the clinical side of the condition and the distribution. But it was at a time when the Derg Marxist government were in were in power in Ethiopia. There were struggles on almost every border. <laughs> and so there was really very little attention given to health issues. And, and so a lot of the work that he did never really um, got taken up in terms of policy change. So it's there. The literature is there. There are some wonderful papers, but that was never translated uh, into, say, education curricula or into um, um, policy within the Ministry of Health. Fascinating. Mm. Yeah, that things going on in, mm. at any given time in a country mm. will prevent that communication uh, yes. of research or, or science yes. into exactly. people's real lives. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that seems to be exactly what happened. Yeah, you can have great research, which is exactly what Price did. Very methodical and logical what he covered. But then if the environment is not right for taking it up, the, the, the may never, well, there may not be impact at all soon. Yeah, mm. the research in itself doesn't do the job. Yeah, sure, yeah. sure. You can imagine what the life of somebody with podokoniosis becomes like. Somebody with an oozing, weeping foot that attracts flies is soon to be excluded from school. Another person finds it difficult to trade in the marketplace. Many people find it very, very hard to marry anyone other than another affected person. And many are considered cursed by God for having feet like that. So you can quickly see it's not just a disability, but something that brings huge stigma and ostracization to patients. I remember meeting one girl of 16 or 17 um, on one of the first visits I made to um, a podo clinic site. Uh, she had been brought by her uncle to that clinic uh, because two days previously she tried to jump out of a tree and end her life because she noticed that her foot, her feet had started to swell and she knew from just looking around her in the community that that was going to alter her life chances uh, irreparably. Uh, she knew that it would mean she was pushed out of school um, she would be very unlikely to marry. Um, she'd find it increasingly difficult to to work in most of the occupations available to a, um, a teenager in, in rural Ethiopia. So coming from that background, um, then coming to a clinic or having one of the health extension workers um, come and explain the condition, I think... Um, there's a sort of release on a lot of levels. First of all, just understanding that this is not a curse or something that's, um, you know, been done to you by another person or by God. That's so important. It's very freeing to know that. There are a lot of um, sort of uh, supernatural explanations and often sort of semi-religious explanations as well as well about the disease because it's you know, the, the biomedical um, explanation just hasn't been available in those communities. Now, it's important to understand that podoconiosis is not infectious and it is neither caused by a virus, a bacterium or a parasite. 
Instead, it's an allergic reaction to irritants in the red clay soils, which can be found in specific highland tropical areas. Although 1.6 million people in Ethiopia alone are thought to suffer from podoconiosis, the most straightforward way to prevent the disease is to wear shoes if you're exposed to the soils. The collaboration of Gail and Melanie is uniquely insightful because although they work in different disciplines, by working together, they are tackling podoconiosis in different ways. Specifically, Melanie's research has led them towards identifying a genetic predisposition to the disease. I got involved with the project actually because Gail knew that I was interested in the genetics of susceptibility to tropical diseases. And that Gail had made this observation, in fact, that when you went to communities where there was podoconiosis, there were families that had lots of cases, and then the neighbouring family had no cases, and yet they were living in exactly the same environment, no shoes and so on, exposed to the soil, suggesting there was a genetic element. So that was how I got involved with the project. And so Gail said, come and have a look, and I'm always <laughs> interested in travel and exploring new places and new ideas. So I visited Ethiopia. We have been doing some quite high-tech, if you like, genetic studies and have identified a locus in the human genome that seems to be associated with podoconiosis. So my role in the current project, or one of the roles, is that we want to take this work forward. And having mapped it, we're actually looking at this getting from where we know there's a gene involved and we know there's something in the soil. We don't really know what's in between that and how the genetic makeup of an individual and this soil component are coming together to cause disease. Together, by adopting different methods, activities and partnerships, they are making a big difference. A first step to tackling the disease has been mapping it. They're collaborating with Dr. Kebeda Derabe, a spatial epidemiologist with the Brighton and Sussex Medical School, and a Wellcome Trust Intermediate Fellow in Public Health and Tropical Medicine. This will help them to better understand the spread and reach of PODO. Kebeda has designed and implemented studies to map the geographical distribution of podoconiosis, which is also referred to as a global atlas. He's somebody um, who did his PhD with us, funded through the Wellcome Trust, mapping podoconiosis within Ethiopia, and he's now taking that work forward in his postdoctoral research to map podoconiosis globally. So he's extending the work into other countries such as Uganda, Rwanda and so on. When Dr. Kebeda goes into a country, he's there not just to do the technical side of mapping, but to start building the partnerships that will then deliver the programmes to help patients. For example, um, he completed mapping of Rwanda with his team uh, in January of this year, and next month um, we'll be going with uh, four Ethiopian experts to train Rwandan health profession professionals to um, develop and deliver programs. And the Global Atlas of Podo is really important in developing those new relationships and partnerships. The two things go hand in hand. This mapping work will provide crucial information to public health officials and policy makers, enabling them to plan and base their policy more effectively. So in Ethiopia, Dr. Kebeda's work has shown that 4% of the adult population are affected by podoconiosis, and that works out at 1.5 million people um, who are actually affected with it. 
just in Ethiopia. Wow, that's that's an awful lot. Yeah, it is a lot, yeah. and we 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 think that's probably the country with the largest burden globally. But that's again part of Dr. Kebeda's um, work now to try to uh, establish what the number of cases is likely to be right around the world, and you know which countries are the most severely affected, and within those countries, which districts are the most severely affected, so that governments can respond um, and put programs into place in those districts. When uh, Kebeda could show that 345 districts out of 900 were affected and there were a million and a half people affected, then the government quite quickly did turn to action and, and you know has agreed that this is a priority and that programmes are needed in those districts. Um, th- there are issues, of course, about funding um, those programmes Um, But the information is now there and the government has taken that very, very seriously. And that is happening in other countries. Uh, Kebeda has now mapped Cameroon and Rwanda and we're just preparing to map Burundi and uh, Uganda. And we're there at the invitation of those countries' ministries of health. Um, And so, you know, they've shown interest in what they perceive might be a problem. And then when we can come and show them very clear figures and distribution patterns, then they'll have the uh, information on which to base policy. Right. So being able to show that information Mm. in a digestible way is very important. Yes. Changing social policy. Absolutely, that's right. And, you know, maps are quite attractive and they're quite intuitive. So, you know, they're a really key part of it. Um, You know, nice coloured maps of prevalence uh, by district, for example. This work also helps develop relationships and capacity within countries working to identify and tackle podoconiosis. Steadily building partnerships around the world in the countries that we believe are likely still to be endemic, you know, is 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 very important. Um, and the Global Atlas of Podo Project is really important in developing those new relationships and partnerships. What are the overall methods um, that you identify as being essential to adopt in, in combating something like PODO? So if you're thinking about um, the long-term goal of uh, eliminating PODO, then we've got to think very carefully about prevention as well as about treating patients already affected. And I, I suppose that you know the more time I spend in, in affected communities... Um, the more I'm aware of the fundamental importance of um, the right messages getting across so people understand what the disease is, what causes it, what they themselves can do to prevent it so that they um, take responsibility for protecting themselves and their children against the disease into the future. So it's no good having a you know some government facilities offering treatment if nobody in the area realises that um, the, the disease is both preventable and treatable, you've got to get the messages out there first because there's a very deep um, inbuilt fatalism about the condition after you know many decades of neglect. The footwork 
charity that Gail set up in 2012 has as many as 13 partners. One of them, called Mossy Foot, produces public message film in which crucial information is delivered by a poto patient who's been trained to give care to other patients in their community. This is really important because delivering information on the ground in a way that has meaningful impact and behaviour change is difficult. And the idea is that footwork brings together um, the stakeholders that are involved in uh, research, implementation and policy um, at a global level. So, uh, yes, collaboration and partnership, yeah, footwork is, is a network, is a partnership and couldn't possibly achieve elimination um, w- without that. Two key partners in Footwork's extensive networks are Tom's, a USU company, and NAPAN, the National Podoconiosis Action Network, an assembly of researchers, policymakers, and clinicians made up from all the groups now offering care to patients with podoconiosis in Ethiopia. What if I started a shoe company, and every time I sold a pair of shoes, I gave a pair away? And that way, if as long as I continue to keep selling shoes, these kids will have shoes for the rest of their life. Tell me about working with Tom's. Sure. They approached us uh, back in 2007 or 8, I think it was, uh, realising that um, not only could they distribute shoes to children to, you know, give them more respect in the community, but actually to prevent a disease. It kind of worked out that that might be um, a possible link. So we have partnered with them and and then they supported um initial setup of footwork they have distributed shoes to children at high risk of podoconiosis as melanie explained with a family history of it and tom's covered the distribution costs and um, made sure the shoes were made in country so there were as many benefits as possible to the country and and so the 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 ngos that uh, make up Napan were very well placed to identify those families and and the children were receiving two pairs of shoes per year and i i I think you know w- what we learn long term is that it's most important that a shoe market is developed in country and that um, communities learn to prioritize shoes and then to buy the shoes for their children and local markets will grow in response to that but I feel Tom's has played a very, very valuable role in catalyzing the whole sort of idea of shoes in in the communities that need them for children. It's been a very visible way of um, drawing attention to this condition and the Ministry of Health has appreciated that and um, even if it doesn't, if it's not sustainable long term, then it's, you know, provided a useful catalytic role. And I also know there are always going to be, you know, tensions between um, U.S. corporate speed of doing things and what's achievable in in low resource settings. And um, so, you know, quite a bit of the work of Napan was was trying to um, mesh those, you know, two sets of expectations and make them help them work together. Then Napan does act to quickly translate um, the new research findings that are coming up through our group um, into action. And the other exciting thing now is that NAPAN is being asked to train government health workers. And, I mean, I think that is the only way that one and a half million patients are going to be reached. Um, however goodwill the NGOs are, their, their reach is going to be limited. They're, they're small organisations, whereas the government have got the network 
and they need the training in best practice and they're now calling on NAPAN to provide that, um, which I think is a very exciting development for NAPAN. This role of local capacity building in your research, so building local capacity with relevant African countries so that they can respond to the problems themselves. Perhaps you could tell me a little bit about what that actually means. You know, who are these workers okay. and, and what, what is the process that happens there? How is that capacity building? OK, so the Health Extension Worker Programme was brought in in Ethiopia um, at least 10 years ago. And very quickly, over the course of about five years, about 38,000 health extension workers were trained and deployed. Um, this was in an effort to bridge some of the gaps in access to um, health care that Ethiopians living particularly in rural areas experienced. So they're, they're females, they have one year of training and they do mostly health pr promotion and disease prevention. So there are two per community of about 5,000 people right across Ethiopia, so in the most remote rural settings and also in, in, in the cities too. They're very close to the community. They will always know... Um, among the 5,000 people that they're looking after, they will always know who's got leg swelling and they are perfectly able to help patients understand enough about the disease and about the, the treatment methods, which are very simple, foot hygiene, and then kind of motivate people to do this in a group setting. Uh, they're very, very well placed to do that at community level, um, to get messages out to patients and to try to put in place um, treatment programmes that are accessible to all those 1.5 million patients. So is there an equivalent in, in, the, in the genome-based study? Often, because it is quite high-tech research and quite expensive research, people sort of say, well, why are you investing in this kind of research when it's obvious these simple things, you know, the messages about treatment and prevention are really important. But actually, even from the very simple genetics research that we did, just looking within families and trying to understand how genes might be transmitted, we were able to show that podoconiosis definitely does have a genetic component. And so there was a public health message in that, in that if you have a family history and you have limited resources, say a certain limited number of pairs of shoes, then they should go to the children where there's a family history. Whereas if there's no podoconiosis in the family, you're unlikely to develop the disease. So the genetics research has some very simple um, solutions as well. Getting more towards the impact side of things rather than the science. Obviously, the science is really interesting, understanding the mechanisms of disease. We're actually also trying to build capacity to do research as a kind of byproduct, if you like, of the research on podoconiosis. And one of the areas is to build laboratory research as well. And we have good facilities in Addis Ababa, but the patients are actually living in quite remote rural highland areas. And it's a long way from the facilities there. So we're trying to set up a laboratory in a, a town called Bahidar, which is nearer to one of the field sites, where, which is close to where people with podoconiosis are actually living. So I went with our main partner, um, or one of our partners on the science side, the laboratory science, uh, Dr. Abraham Asifa, who's leading the project there with a 
PhD student from Ethiopia who's going to be working on it with a postdoctoral researcher from Ethiopia and in fact a postdoctoral counterpart from here in the UK. So we all went together to visit the labs, meet the people there and also to visit some of the local health facilities where uh, patients with podoconiosis go for treatment. So it's a really important problem and there's a lot of people working in the field, there's a lot of expertise now that's growing up so we can actually train people from start to finish going through PhDs. We're now getting to the level where there's a big gap actually, uh, particularly in, in African countries, of middle grade researchers. So getting your PhD is one thing, but we also need future leaders. And there's not much at the moment in terms of funding and actually environment. It's the research environment as well that really matters here uh, for those intermediate levels. So getting from getting your PhD, becoming a postdoctoral researcher to becoming a group leader. Um, so this project actually has been a way of providing models, if you like, for that as well, because what we're doing in podoconiosis could be applied to many other different conditions and other research projects. In 2011, the WHO uh, recognised uh, podoconiosis in its list of neglected tropical diseases. I mean, how important is it that big institutions get on board like this in, in a global sense? It, it is very important, and I think when you've got a highly neglected condition, then it's very important to uh, kind of join the agenda with one an existing agenda. And, you know, in the period between 2000 and 2010, there was this enormous and very exciting um, movement called the Neglected Tropical Diseases. I mean, it may not sound like a kind of big achievement to be recognised as a neglected tropical disease, but because there was such energy behind that movement, it really has been important. And I think endemic countries, countries that are affected, that, you know, that we're demonstrating through the mapping have have you know, got many affected districts, they will find it easier to put podoconiosis on their on a master plan and then try to attract funding to support programmes to control podoconiosis with this official recognition so that it's, it's important uh, on that level. I think, yeah, stepping back across the project more widely, I think one of the things that we are proud of with this project is it has been a multidisciplinary project and we're looking at podoconiosis from a very holistic aspect and as Gail mentioned, their overall goal will be to eliminate the condition. And so the final question, and I think I probably know the answer to this, but um, what do you hope for the future of your work? What does this condition um, look like in the next two to five to ten years? I look forward to building our team, uh, including more scientists, both from endemic countries and um, from the UK, um, very clearly focusing on the remaining gaps, being very methodical about identifying the gaps that are going to really make a difference in the elimination agenda and then um, finding the funding to support the research on that and then finding the brilliant people to take the research forward. It's a very strong, um, committed word, elimination. It is. Um, this is, although it's been chosen quite carefully, um, you can go for eradication, elimination or control and we've learnt from the other neglected tropical disease movements um, that you, you do need ambition to kind of galvanise support around um, a goal and we, we say elimination within our lifetimes. 
So that gives us a little bit of flexibility on the end point. <laughs> But, you know, when you think about it compared to other conditions, it's actually doable because we don't have, for example, a, an infectious agent that we need to control or get rid of that we can't because there might be a vector or something, so there'll always be a reservoir. People, if they wear shoes, then they will be protected against the condition And so in that level, if we talk about something like diabetes, a different non-communicable disease, we just don't know enough about the condition to say that we could ever eliminate it. Whereas with PODA, we know that something in the soil and we can provide a barrier between the foot and the soil. So it's doable. It's just a question of the ambition, isn't it, and the scale. If you think about the story that Gail has told about in 2001, 2002, nobody having ever heard of it and Gail visiting... <laughs> This area where there was produce, so it was basically Gale, then getting people, it was just one person getting people on board. And you just look at all the activity now and the numbers of agencies involved, the networks, the number of people working with podoconiosis. And if that can happen in 10 years and it grows exponentially, which these things usually do, then that's another reason to be optimistic, I would say. I would wish you the best. That's the both of luck. Yeah, it sounds wonderful. Thanks so much, guys. Oh, It's been really yeah, educational. That's interesting.